Luke chapter 23. Just a a way of uh, explanation. Uh, If you've been here with us, you know that we don't uh, pass an offering plate, uh, but there are boxes for our regular attenders and and, uh, uh, members to uh, give to the ministry of this church and the worldwide ministry of the missionaries that are supported by this church. And uh, we say, uh, as the Lord leads you to give, you give. If you're a visitor with us today, we say, you are our guest, and we're just glad to have you with us this morning. And uh, we look forward to what God's going to do through the not only the gifts that are given in the form of money, but in the talents and the uh, testimony that is being given throughout the week uh, by people at Village Bible Church. So Luke chapter 23 this morning. We are in a series looking at the famous last words of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And last week we looked at uh, the opening phrase that Jesus shares, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And talking about all the activities that were happening underneath the cross and how the people that crucified Jesus needed forgiveness. But we went beyond that because we said that it wasn't just forgiveness for those below the cross, but those beyond the cross. And how each and every person that has lived on this earth is in need of forgiveness. And we talked about the importance of the forgiveness that Christ gave to us. But we also looked at the importance of the call of all believers and all Christians to forgive one another. And it was so neat uh, to have two people come up to me this last week and, and share that forgiveness had been made between the two of them, that there had been some fighting within our church and they had gotten together and And they had rubbed each other the wrong way. And after the message, the Holy Spirit led both of them right to the coffee pot about the same time. And what did both of them do? They said, either I could just grit grit my teeth and, and bear saying hello to that individual, or I could seek forgiveness. And they sought forgiveness in that moment. That's what the Lord wants us to be a part of, remembering the forgiveness that God has shown us in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, today we look at the second of these seven sayings from the cross. And we look at an individual. It isn't just everybody. Forgive them for they know not what they are doing this time that Jesus involves himself in. But he talks to one. He talks to a thief that is being hung alongside him. And we're going to look at that text this morning. So let us stand and read together Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start in verse 32 to give us a context And go to verse 43. This is what um, Luke writes in his gospel. Now two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing And it says that the soldiers beneath him divided up his clothes by casting lots, literally rolling dice. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? 
Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father God, we come to a text that many of us know. We come to a text that many of us are acquainted with. And Father, I pray that this will not just be another message about the thief on the cross. And that, Lord, we wouldn't allow ourselves just to, to, to listen with idle ears and idle hearts, but that we would seek to understand something anew, something afresh from Your Word this morning. Oh, Father, I pray that as we open Your Word, as we see what Your forgiveness was all about, that we would remember that. Father, as once again, as each week we will come around Your table, Father, I pray that even as as we're sharing from Your Word this morning, that we'd be preparing our hearts, remembering what You did on that cross, remembering the price that was paid. And Lord, giving up Your life, laying it down, being mocked, being abused, being killed. For not just that thief, but all who call upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Father, I pray that today would be a day that one here who's never trusted You as their Savior would give their life to You today. Just like that thief would be promised that at the moment of our death or the moment that You return, that then that day we would be brought into paradise. What an amazing promise. And we praise You for it. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. One of the books that I'm reading to correspond with this sermon series is a book that is written by James Montgomery Boyce, a deceased pastor from Philadelphia from the 10th Presbyterian Church, and his associate pastor, Philip Riken. And uh, in their book, on the chapter dealing with the repentant thief, the title of the chapter says, The Luckiest Man Alive. I thought that was a weird title because we as Christians don't believe in luck per se, because we say that if we believe in luck, then we believe in the idea of chance. So I began to nuance and say, well, what if I say that uh, this man was the luckiest man in the world? What is that saying to the congregation? And so I said, do I better understand what this word luck means? And I looked at two definitions And both of them I would be in agreement with. It says luck is the force that seems to operate for good in a person's life as in shaping circumstances, events, and opportunities. This man was the luckiest man alive according to that definition. Now you'd say, well, okay, so so Tim, you believe in chance? No. But I would put at the beginning of that definition the God that seems to operate for good in a person's life. This word luck literally means fortunate, another definition says. This man was fortunate. Now you say, how could this man be fortunate? I began to think about what this man had going on in his life. He had committed a crime. He he had been convicted of it by a trial and by a court. 
and he was being crucified. It doesn't sound like that's a pretty lucky day for any individual. I've done a crime, I'm being convicted of it, and now I'm being crucified for it. That doesn't seem to be a fortunate day. But how amazing it is, and let us never miss the sovereignty of God in this, that God had an appointment with this man. And that was the fortunate force of God that said it pleased him before the foundations of the earth in his decreed will that that man would be hung on the cross next to another man named Jesus. How circumstances change. We live in a society today that says luck is about your finances. Luck is about scratching a lotto ticket or rolling some dice and hoping that all the cards and all the dice roll as they will for you. We talk about luck in, in uh, throwing up a last-second basketball shot in a basketball game and it swishes. And we say they were lucky. They were fortunate. But one thing I want us to understand this morning is that we are, if you will, and pardon the expression, the luckiest people alive. Because we are fortunate enough to be in a world full of sinners, and yet we've had an appointment with Jesus Christ. That's what this man had. And I want to look at this uh, this morning. Now we see, for the only time in Scripture, a last-second salvation. Now, there are many people that have, that have no doubt wondered, why don't I just live my life the way I want to, and then at the very end, at the very last second, I'll get on my knees and I'll say, Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I want you to know something. This is the only place in Scripture that that happens. So it's probably not good luck to wait on that last second salvation. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation and that today is the day that because why because the, today is the day because we don't know what a day might bring i was thinking of course as many of you were were those young college students up in dekalb thinking that today was the day that they would meet their maker most definitely not but no man or woman knows what a day might bring so let me give you a warning those who say i've got time for those who think I'm young, for those who think I'm indestructible, the criminal on the cross had no idea that that was going to be his last day. And when grace appears to you, when the tugging of, the heart, of your heart is there, it is time for you to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Don't wait. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. So what do we see this morning? As we look at this man on the cross, we see uh, three things I want to pull out this morning. First of all, we see that this uh, thief on the cross is a picture of all sinners. It is a picture of all sinners. What we see in our text this morning is we begin to understand that this guy represents us as sinful humanity. A.W. Pink says this, We will never understand the power of this cry from the cross till we see the thief as the representative of all sinful humanity. If we start saying, well, well he's just a thief, or, and he's, he's inconsequential uh, uh, to the events, this is not a big deal to him, then we miss out on what it's talking about. But if we begin to look at him and say, this guy represents me, 
then we get somewhere. Now you say, well, who is this man? We don't know much about this man. But the translators use different words to describe him. Some use thieves. Others use robbers, bandits. Of course, the NIV uses criminal. Luke's word in the Greek literally means members of the criminal class. These were professional criminals. They were members, if you will, of the underworld. These are people that you you didn't want hanging around your family. They were hoodlums, thugs, killers, ones who killed for fun, for profit. They were literally, probably, assassins. And then finally, what one of the uh, word pictures says is this would be a man who would steal from everyone. This is who we have that we're meeting this morning. And just like that thief, we're no different. One thing that I'm struggling with with modern day evangelicalism is preachers are in the business of telling people things that will make people feel good. You're good. There's not a lot of bad things about you. I don't want you to feel beat up. I want you to feel beat up. I don't want to be like that. I want you to know and understand that we as Christians have come from a place of being sinners. And the moment we start forgetting where we've come from, where we started as sinners, then we miss out on what God has called for us. And we begin to forget so great the salvation. We begin to ignore it like the book of Hebrews speaks about. So who are we? We're thugs. We're totally depraved. We go all towards our own ways. We pursue our own desires. In our hearts we say there is no God. We're God-haters. We're insolent. Remember all that we talked about in Romans chapter 1? That applies to us as human beings. We speak of this in theological terms as the total depravity of man. We are sinful. We are totally corrupt. Now, I must define this. Does that mean we are as bad as we could be? Absolutely not. Of course, you may not be as bad as Adolf Hitler. He was a pretty bad guy. You may not be as bad as Joseph Stalin or some of these people that go and do these shooting rampages. You say, well, I'm not like them, Tim. I would agree. But next to a holy God, sin is sin. Next to a holy God, the Bible says that if you break one of the laws, you break all of the law and you are called a lawbreaker. This man represents who we are. Now, now how does it how does it come out? We see three characteristics about him. First of all, we see that just like this sinner, we as sinners revile God. Just like the thief on the cross, we revile God. Now you say in the text in Luke it says that only one of the thieves uh, insulted him or reviled him. Well, we have to look at Matthew 27 for a moment. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, and we're going to be looking at verse uh, 38 through 44. If you're in the book of Luke, go to your left, two books over, and you'll find the book of Matthew. Matthew 27, verse 38. Of course, this isn't the only place in Luke that talks about the things that are going on in the during the time of the crucifixion. And we see in Matthew 27, verse 38, it says the following. Uh, That doesn't sound like the right passage. Is that wrong? It's right? 44, thank you. Thank you, sorry about that. We're looking at, uh, okay, verse 41. Let's start there. 
In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now look at what it says in verse 44. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, notice with me for a moment. Jesus is on the cross. He's hanging there. There's two crosses, one on his left, one on his right. There are people around him. And what is going on? There seems to be an idea or a picture that it is a laugh a minute about Jesus. There's mocking going on. There's jokes being told about Jesus. And everybody is involved in it. Now think about how sick of an individual you could be hanging on the cross and next to you is another person and you're so sinful and so deviant that on your dying deathbed, if you will, you're mocking somebody else. That's, that's pretty rare that someone would do that. I would think I got bigger fish to fry than worrying about the guy next to me. But they reviled him. And even while they're dying, with their last dying breath, they are saying, we hate you, God. We hate you, Jesus. Who do you think you are? Well, they reviled him. Well, we see that in in our lives as well. Look at what the people did. We see that they mocked him in verses 38 through 44. They made him the butt of jokes. Literally, one of the gospel writers said that the soldiers, because he had called himself, been called the king of the Jews, They said, well, let's dress him up as a king. Let's put a crown of thorns on him. That would be funny. Let's find him a robe. That'll make him look good. Let's set him up as the king. And they mocked him. We see that reviling taking place. They questioned his power. Verse 39 in our text of Matthew uh, 27. It says, well, he saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? Didn't he help a a guy with leprosy? Didn't he make the lame to walk? Well, if he did that... And if his power is so great, then why doesn't he use that power on himself? The next thing that we see is that they uh, question his relationship with the Father. Why doesn't he ask God to help him out? Why doesn't he, if he's so close with his Father, why doesn't his Father help him out in this situation? And they mocked him. Insult after insult. And I believe that not all, that not all the insults are recorded in Scripture, but that it was a laugh a minute about Jesus. Now, how do we do that as sinners? I've been grieved in the last couple uh, weeks to hear about two references that have been made about Jesus, one on the comedy stage and another one by an ESPN sportscaster. One used uh, one of the mother of all curse words, if you will, speaking of Jesus. She got one day out of her job. One day. Now, if you said that about Muhammad, you said that about Buddha, you said that about another individual, you would be fired. We've seen that. You make an off-color joke about some women, which is wrong, like Don Imus did, and what happened? He's fired. That's speaking about another human being, which is wrong. Please hear me this morning. But you speak about Jesus, and you get a slap on the wrist. Don't say that. That's not very nice. And there that gets the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We got a world that mocks Jesus. We've got a world that reviles Jesus, that makes insults about Jesus. If Jesus is all this, 
then why doesn't he do that? Have you heard that before? If Jesus is God and he's such a loving and kind God, why would he allow terrible things to happen? That's the questioning of the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. And in it, in that question, is a mockery in and of itself. We revile God. We say that in our heart there is no God. These people were mocking. They were making fun of Jesus. And in doing so, what were they saying? There is no God. And if you're here today, I don't say it, but God does. He calls you a fool. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We've got a lot of fools running around and speaking about our King. They're speaking about our Lord and Savior. When someone uses the name Jesus and adds another word to it, or uses the term God and then adds a D word after it, you need to stop that person. And you need to say, you know what? That's my Savior. Please don't say that. That offends me and it offends my holy God in heaven. We need to stand up as Christians and say, enough is enough. God was right before him, and they mocked him. We do the same thing as sinners. The next thing we see is this man was called a robber. And we too are robbers. He was a thief, among other things. And yet we too are thieves in the sinful state. Now you say, well, I haven't stolen anything. I know I have. I know I did a lot when I was a young boy. My parents had a grocery store. And my dad had piles of baseball cards. And I am embarrassed to say that there wasn't a day that didn't go by that I would take a baseball card because my dad wasn't kind enough of a man to let me have one. And the sad thing was is I was stupid enough to think that my father wouldn't know. That stealing went on. I remember one time I had just been moved up. It was a big day for Tim. Moved up to cashier. I don't know. Most of you don't know my parents ran a grocery store before they had the catering business. And I, it was a cashier. And my dad handed me money to go to the bank to deposit money. And I said, Dad, there's a lot of money here. And I'm going on a field trip to Great America, and it'd be nice to maybe buy the guys a hot dog. That'll make me popular. So I said, you know what? He won't miss $40. And little did I know that the bank counts money and that it created an uproar. And I said, Dad, I don't know what happened. You know, it was a windy day. Maybe some of the wind caught. He said, son, it was in a bag. Um, well, maybe you miscounted it. Well, I counted it, and the secretary counted it as well. And for an hour, my dad, I was like, Dad, leave it alone. Be done with it. He's scouring his office. He's looking for these two $20 bills, and he would not leave it alone. And I know why, because it was given time for the Holy Spirit just to waylay me with a sledgehammer. And I said, oh, Dad, by the way, these two $20 bills found their way into my pocket. Why would they find their way in the pocket, son? He asked. I said, because I saw the money and I wanted it. And I took it. Now, you may not be like me, kleptomaniac. (laughs) And you may say, I don't steal. I never have. Well, that's great. Maybe you haven't stole physically. But the Bible makes it clear as it gives an indictment of humanity that we've stolen spiritually. We've stolen spiritually. I've written down some things. We have stolen life. I don't just mean in the way of murder, but just in the way we live life. God created us. He owns us. He tells us what we should do through His Holy Word. And what do we say? 
God, my life is not yours. I will live it the way I want to, so get out of my life. You have stolen when you go and live a life of rebellion. The next one I had is talents. God has given us talents. He's given us blessings of spiritual gifts to be used. And what do we do? We take those talents and we use them for what? In our jobs to give us more money, to use it for our notoriety. Instead of giving God the glory and using them for God, we serve self. I said glory. We as Christians steal the glory of God at all times. It's all about us. It's about, look what I've done. Look how I've talked. Look at what we've said. We do that in churches as well. We say, look at how great our church is. Instead of giving God the glory, we find ourselves as robbers stealing from God. This thief on the cross is a picture of us in humanity. The final thing we see is uh, we revile God and we rob God, but we're ruined. We're ruined. Look at Luke 23, verse 32. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. That word executed isn't a word that you have to nuance in the Greek. It means the same thing in the Greek as it does in the English. He was led out to be killed. He was led out to be put to death. This is easy for us to understand. This thief on the cross, we must understand, is at the end of his rope. He's got nothing going for him. All his life of crime and his life of pursuit of pleasures and all that, it was all over. He was ruined. I like what A.W. Pink says uh, about this man. He says, uh, he's talking about the importance of us remembering that uh, before any sinner can be saved, he must come to a place of his realized weakness and ruin. This is what the conversion of the dying thief shows us. What could he do? Could he not walk in the paths of righteousness? He could not walk in the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through either foot. He could not perform any good works, for there was a nail in either hand. He could not turn over a new leaf and live a better life, for he was about to be killed. And my reader, those hands of yours that are ready for self-righteous acting, and those feet of yours that are so swift to run in the way of legal obedience, must first be nailed to the cross. For any sinner to understand his place before Christ, he must understand he is cut off from his own human workings and must be willing to be saved. It begins with a realized uh, understanding of your sinful condition, your lost condition, your helpless condition, and it is nothing more or less than the old-fashioned conviction of sin that becomes the sole prerequisite for coming to Christ. This man was ruined. And I could open up the floor and people would say that the moment that they truly understood that they needed a Savior was when they were found at rock bottom. I'll tell you what, there have been times in my life where I have hit rock bottom and those are the times of greatest conviction of sin. Don't be ready. Maybe you find yourself at a place this morning where everything's falling apart. And maybe you're not understanding why, and maybe you've never made a decision, excuse me, towards Jesus Christ. You sit there for a while, and you allow the Holy Spirit to tell you that it isn't about you, and it isn't about how great you are, it isn't about how smart you are, it isn't about how wonderful you are, but the Bible says you are a ruined individual. This man was about to die 
for his sins. His life was out of his hands. Maybe you feel like that today. Your life is out of control. Why? Because the consequences of sin were haunting him now. He was undone. He was in a desperate situation. Why? Because the Bible says that we are all transgressors of sin. And because of our sin, we find ourselves under a death penalty. Sounds like a good parallel with this thief on the cross, doesn't it? We sin, what happens? The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wage, the payment of that sin is death. What was this guy facing? A death penalty. And it was ruining his life. We need to understand like never before as Christians where we've come from. We begin to forget our salvation. We begin to forget how good we've got it. How fortunate we are when we look to Scripture and we begin to forget that we were lost. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3. If you're in the book of Luke, turn a couple books over. Luke, John, Acts and the book of Romans going to your right, and you'll find Romans chapter 3. Let these words sear our hearts this morning. Let them open the eyes of people that have never heard these words. I want to hear what some of the headings are. If you've got a heading there right above, my Bible has it right above verse 9. Would someone have a heading there? What does it say? What's that? The condemnation of all men. I like that. Who else? Who else? No one is righteous. If you circle, you say, well, I don't circle, underline heading. Circle and underline that heading. That's a good reminder. That should be a stop sign when you read Romans 3. It should be a stop sign. Paul is saying, what then shall we conclude? Are we any better? He's speaking of both Greek and Gentiles in this, uh, I'm sorry, Jews and Gentiles in this passage. He says, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. Now listen to what Paul says. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become, what does that word say? Worthless. We are ruined. Not just the steep on the cross, we are too. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Now look at what it says. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We live in our sinful state, ruined before God. And until we begin to understand this in our context this morning, then we'll never understand the goodness of what Jesus says after that. We so many times want to go to, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the good news. Well, how do we understand good news until we understand the bad? And a lot of people want to just get to the good, and that's good. But it's not the whole story. And as the great Paul Harvey says, now is time for the rest of the story. The rest of the story is the good news is good because you and I are sinners beyond repair without the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and because of the work on the cross of Calvary. So once we understand that this man is a picture of all sinners, we see a second thing, and that is the path of salvation. We see the path of salvation. Now, one thing we've got to understand is that just like the thief, we're in need of salvation. Now, the thief tells us where we are to find that salvation. 
He's a picture. Now we're going to see a picture of conversion take place. I think it's awesome that he shares, Jesus shares just a couple of verses beforehand, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And then a few short verses later, we don't know how much time spanned there, but within that day, what Jesus articulated with his mouth, he fulfilled with a promise. I'm glad for that. I put my hope in that. That Jesus doesn't just share words. He isn't just some uh, teacher of idle thoughts and idle ideas. But he does what he says. We see a couple things, three things about this path to Christ. First of all, it involves a change of heart. It involves a change of heart. This man has a change of heart. He goes from mocking Jesus to seeking Jesus. He goes from following the crowd to following Christ. He goes from being a sinner to being a saint. Now what happened? What change of heart took place? Commentators are divided on what it may have been. They say one one said that uh, Jesus, uh, or I'm sorry, this thief may have seen Jesus perform some miracles. That as he's hanging on the cross, he begins to look and say, wait a minute, is that the Jesus of Nazareth that I saw? So and so many days ago or months ago, and he healed that individual? Could be. Speculation. We don't know. Could he have been on the cross, that thief, and looked over to Jesus and saw Jesus' name and on the top on that plank of wood or that parchment that said, King of the Jews? We don't know if this man was a Jew or Gentile. Of course, crucifixions were taking place throughout the Roman Empire. So we don't know if this man maybe knew about the Messianic uh, prophecies from the prophets that had been shared. Maybe he looked up the cross and he said, it's him. Jesus is the Messiah. We don't know. It's speculation. Another way they've speculated is that he heard the mocking of the crowd. And they said, he's the king of the Jews. He's the son of God. They said, hey, he has saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? Maybe what the guy was thinking on the cross is, hey, wait a minute. They're even telling truth. Even in their mockery, they're giving truth. And maybe they're right. Has he saved others? And could he not save me and everyone else as well? We don't know. But all would agree and know that the man heard Jesus ask the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And many commentators, in fact, most everyone that I read this week, would say that forgiveness, Christ forgiving, asking for forgiveness of the people who had hurt him and beat him and mocked him, the Father's forgiveness was what led that thief to Jesus Christ in the need of salvation that he had. That's a wonderful reminder for us as we forgive. Why do we forgive? Because Christ has forgiven us. And what an avenue of of a way of salvation for a person to come to know Christ when we forgive them and when they say, why did you forgive me? Because Jesus Christ and my Father in heaven has forgiven me. You want a witness? You be one who forgives. You one that is able to give over sins that have been committed against you over to God. And you don't say, well, I'm just a nice forgiving person. That's my personality. That's how my mom was. You say, I forgive because my Savior in heaven has forgiven me and he commands me to do the same. It involves a change of heart. The next thing we see is that it involves a confession of guilt. 
Look at what goes on. We see that salvation comes when we, when we are revealed that we have no hope. If you have hope in what you're doing, if you have hope in your own self-righteousness, then you are in no need of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Tim, I'm not like that thief. I love my wife. I love my kids. I don't cheat on my taxes. I do right things. I, I walk people across the street and I stop when people have flat tires. I do good things. Well, until you understand that you're guilty before an almighty and holy God, then you don't need salvation. But good luck with that when you're hanging on your own cross, when you're sitting in that bed in the hospital wondering what will happen the moment you die. What are you going to tell a holy God? What are you going to say about that little white lie that you said when you were eight? What about those evil thoughts that you've had, those thoughts as you looked upon a man or a woman in a wrong way? What are you going to do with those? The Bible says those are sin, and they will be then condemned to hell with the individual who has sinned those sins. There's a confession of sin. Well, where does it come from? Look at 23, verse 40. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But verse 40 says, But the other criminal, this repentant one, rebuked him. Don't you fear God? The first place that confession of sin comes is in in a healthy fear of God. Maybe today you're sitting here and saying, This is garbage. Who cares about what God is doing? God doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about the details of my life. So why should I worry about Him? It begins with a healthy respect of who God is. God is the judge. God is the Holy One. God is the one who gives life and who takes life away. God is the God who oversees all the details of life. It begins with a fear of God. Next, it involves a realization of the consequence of sin. Look at verse 40. The end of it. Do you not fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, verse 41, we are, just, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. What does this guy say? He says, all right, don't make fun of God. Don't make fun of Jesus. He's God. And he represents, he, uh, he explains that, that the one that we are mocking on that cross is God. Then he says, hey, we deserve what we're getting. We deserve it. When you come to know Christ, you just can't say, yeah, I accepted Jesus. You're my fire insurance. You must realize why you need fire insurance. I need fire insurance because I'm a sinner in need of grace. It's a realization to the consequence of sin. We're under the same judgment. Then there's a confession. Verse 41, he says, uh, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve no goodness. We deserve no blessing. The Bible uh, has said that uh, we deserve nothing more than a fiery judgment for all who turn away from Christ. And yet that's what we did. Before we came to know Christ, we had already lost our opportunity if it were not for grace. The next thing that we see is it involved the declaration. He says, uh, what our deeds uh, des- with with what our de- getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing. The declaration, the confession of guilt is to say, I'm guilty, but Christ is innocent. Have you said that at any point? Have you confessed your sin in that way? It begins with a change of heart. You can't live the way you used to. It means a confession of guilt, and finally it means a commitment to faith in Christ. 
He identifies step one, his need and the place that he has as a sinner. Number two, he confesses his guilt to Christ. And number three, he places his trust in Christ. Verse 42, then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, there are two types of faith that are displayed by each of these men on the cross. The first one, let's look at before we even get to the repentant one. Let's look at what it says in verse uh, 39. One of the criminals, the non-repentant criminal, who hung there hurled insults at him. Look at what he says. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Some of us here today, and, and we wouldn't even be able to know who it is and isn't. Some of us have gone to Jesus. And in our time of greatest need, in our time when the world's gone against us, we've gotten on our knee and we say, Jesus, help me get out of this situation. If you're really Jesus, then bring a miracle. Make it happen. And some of us have put our salvation on Jesus getting us out of our present predicament. That's not salvation. That is getting out of a jam. Some of us have found ourselves in trouble. Lord knows I've done that so many times. Lord, I promise I'll be a missionary if you will just get me out of this. Probably said that when that $40 was disappearing. If you just get me out of this, I promise I'll serve you. I prom- I'll get into my devotions again. And we do that. And so many of us find ourselves giving ourselves over to Jesus. Why? Not to be our Lord and Savior, but to get us out of the present circumstances of our sin. That's not true biblical faith. Look at what we see, what this man does. He displays faith, verse 39, is based on getting you out of trouble. I'll believe this or that if you'll help me, Jesus. But notice what verse 42 says. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a couple things I see here. Number one. This faith, write this somewhere outside of your out, on the other side of your outline, if you will. This faith was personal. He trusted. Look at who he, what he says. He says, Jesus. This is the only known scripture where one individual talked to Jesus by naming him Jesus. It's a personal name. That's Jesus' personal name. And he says, Jesus, I need you. I need you to help me. Not Now notice, not, not in my present circumstances. Your salvation isn't about your present circumstances. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever known anybody who's been saved out of a, a tough lifestyle, did their circumstances change? Not dramatically right at the beginning, no. But through biblical understanding of scriptures and making wise decisions, yes, as time went on, circumstances could have changed. But by G- him asking Jesus to save him, it wasn't, get me off this cross, It wasn't, hey, help us, get me out of this situation. But it was about something else. He says, remember me when, when you get to your kingdom. It's not a matter of just this moment, but it's a faith in something future that we see take place. Now notice what it is. It's not a demand, but it is a plea. He says, remember me. Listen to what the the other guy said. He said, save yourself and save us. It's a command. A lot of us want to command Jesus to do certain things. If you want to be a child of God, there can be no commands that come from your lips but a plea. He says, remember me. And, And that word can mean so many different things of what exactly it meant. He just wanted to be remembered by the by Christ. He wanted to be remembered. 
Isn't that what we want in, sal- in, in our salvation as Christians? When we get to heaven, we want our Father in heaven to be looking at the Son and the Son to say, I remember them. That is Tim. He is my Son. And my blood has been applied to his life. The final thing is it's powerful. This is a powerful faith. This isn't a last minute getting in by the skin of your teeth kind of, kind of faith. This is a powerful one. Notice with me for a moment. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at Jesus beaten, uh, disfigured. He's looking at Jesus struggling for breath. He's looking at Jesus losing his life. He's looking at Jesus when he's being mocked at and when he's being laughed at. And he looks at that Jesus and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What fool would think that a man in the same predicament as he was would look at another individual on that cross losing his life and to say, when you get to your kingdom, which would define him as a king, your kingdom, when you get there, remember me. You're not what you look like. For you are on the cross to save me and others of my sins and their sins. This is an amazing, powerful faith that should revolutionize the way we look at our faith. Can we look at Jesus and can we say that Jesus, you are the way. Jesus, you are the truth. Jesus, you are the life. Even when it was that Jesus was hanging on the cross. Do we put faith in that? The amazing thing I had written down, his faith was so powerful that it was better to be identified with a dead Savior than to be with any other living man. That's a powerful phrase for me. As I penned those words, I sat there and said, can I say that? Would it be better for me to be identified with Jesus dying on the cross than it would to be hanging out with the richest, most powerful men who are living on earth? And I had to question my own heart in that and say, I pray. I hope that my faith is as powerful as that man on the cross. Why? Because that dead Jesus would one day rise again. On that third day, rise again and bring to us and complete the salvation of our souls. Folks, that's the path of salvation. The path of salvation is giving, getting a change of heart. It means confessing your guilt. It means coming to faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what did that? Only by the grace and mercy of God could that man have made those decisions. And he did. He took a step of faith and he went and he asked Jesus to remember him. Finally, this morning, we see one more thing. And that is the proclamation of our Savior. Verse 43. This is what we see. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. There are five things I see. One is in your outlines. The first one we see is that it revealed an unseen power. This proclamation revealed an unseen power. Between verse 42 and verse 43, you should write in your outlines or in your Bibles, man's life changed. Now, do you hear any bells going off? Do you hear any fireworks taking off on the, on the hill of Golgotha? We don't see any of that. We don't see this man all of a sudden being completely taken off the cross and, oh, well, we didn't know you were a Christian, so come off that cross. Let's mend up your wounds. None of that happens. But what do we see when someone comes by faith to Jesus Christ? 
we see unseen power and change. That's why Jesus, when speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, says that uh, being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit, which is like the wind. No one can see it, but it's there, and we can see the effects of it. This man had an effect in his life, but it was unseen by the unseen power of Jesus. Now notice this. This man goes from being a sinner to a saint, and how does he do it? He does it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on the, on the cross of Calvary, all beaten and abused. He sits there and he transfers his righteousness to the heart of that man. Does he sit there and say, here's my heart, let's do a heart transplant? No, but it is something spiritual and it is something supernatural. At Jesus' most human point in life. He was still able, and still being the Son of God, able to save through and through this thief on the cross. Secondly, it was rooted in a promise. Look at what he says. He says, uh, I tell you the truth. His words are truth. We must always remember that. Literally, uh, one commentator said this means to take it to the bank. It's ironclad. It's rock solid. This wasn't fanciful, wishful thinking. It was the truth. And it had been promised before. Turn your Bibles to John 6:37 for a moment. John 6:37. We'll start in verse 35. Jesus is talking about the bread of life. We talked about this uh, about a year ago when we were in our series in John. John 6:35. Then Jesus declared, "I am the bread of life." He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now listen to what he says. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. If you come to Jesus, you don't have to worry about the sins that you've committed uh, in your past, for you are no worse than the thief on the cross. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up. That man couldn't do any cleaning up. He was on the cross. That man couldn't, as I said before, turn over a new leaf. Why? Because he was about to die on the cross. But what was he able to do? He was able to go to Jesus and say, remember me. And that's what we should do as sinners. Now notice it involved a certain point in time. He says, today. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. This rules out a couple things. Theology 101, it rules out the wrong belief of soul sleep. Soul sleep, very quickly, is the belief in Christianity that the soul sleeps unconsciously between the death of the body and its resurrection on Judgment Day. What that meant is people that believe in soul sleep believe that we die, that we go and we take a little nap, and we just kind of hang out in this unconscious state of nothingness until the resurrection. Well, that's ruled out. Why? Because the thief on the cross is told, today you will be with me, not hanging out in some sleeper room, but you will be with me in paradise. It rules out soul sleep. Second thing it rules out is purgatory. Some of you from the Catholic Church have heard this word before. Purgatory, of course, is the intermediate state or place where souls go to be purged of sin. Well, that's not true. How do we know that not to be true? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, if anybody had some sins to take care of, it would have been the thief on the cross with his last second salvation. My goodness, he just barely made it. We better get him into purgatory and let him kind of get his life all straightened out before he gets to heaven. That's ruled out. 
We can say there is no purgatory. The Bible says that when we die, there's a place called heaven and there's a place called hell. Nowhere in Scripture, please hear me, nowhere in Scripture is there any reference, not even a far-stretching reference, to a third place called purgatory. There are two ways to, to, uh, to death and the afterlife, heaven or hell. It rules out purgatory. It rules out the idea that uh, there's a time between death and being with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 tells us that we are absent from the body, present with the Lord. That should be a hope for us. We should be excited to know that, that even though our bodies may fail us, even though a shooter may come in and annihilate all of us, that it's just a split second that the moment we close our eyes and our brains stop functioning and our hearts stop beating that blood, that we will be before Almighty God in His presence with Jesus. That should be a hope for us. The next thing we see is that it, uh, in this proclamation declared the presence of Christ. He says, you will be with me. It would have been enough for him just, Jesus to have said, today you'll be in paradise. But we see something about the hunger that God has, the hunger that Christ has for fellowship, fellowship to be with us. Heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. Don't think of heaven because of the pearly gates, the, the gold uh, streets. Don't think of heaven as just being a time where there's no more crying, no more pain. Heaven is heaven because it is the abode of God. I love being at home. Now, you could say Tim really loves 410 Prairie View Lane, and, and I would say you're wrong. My house is not my home. The reason why I love to go home isn't because I go to my two-story gray house with blue shutters with a two-car garage. That's not what I want. I want to be home. Why? Because there are people who make up the presence of that home whom I love. Heaven isn't just an amusement park in the sky, but it is a place where our Savior is at, and one day you and I will be there and be with Him. Finally, it tells us of an eternal paradise. This word paradise literally is heaven. It is where the saved are forever given rest. It is the place where we give our hope. It is the prospect that allows us to endure suffering and pain. It is heaven that allows us not to mourn as the pagans mourn who have no hope. It is here where we will celebrate the Lamb once and for all who was slain for us. This man not only saw who he was, but he saw Jesus as the Savior. And Jesus came and he proclaimed words of truth. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. As you're closing your Bibles, I don't like when you do that, so don't do that. Close them when we... We're not done yet. I haven't prayed yet, right? Man, some people are convicted now. Okay. When we come to Jesus, we need to understand it means recognizing our place of sin. And maybe today you've come into this place and you've recognized there's a holy God. There's a God who's going to demand judgment. And the only way that you're going to get into paradise is if you place that judgment on the person and work of Jesus Christ and you say to Jesus, remember me. If you've never done that, don't leave this place because today is the day of salvation. 
Talk with me, talk with Pastor Keith or any of the elders or pastors. Talk with uh, the people at the Welcome Center. Talk to the person sitting next to you. Say, don't leave. Don't go get that coffee guy sitting next to me. I need to know about Jesus because we do not know what a day might bring. And like this dying thief, we too will come to a day of unknown time and circumstance where we will meet our Maker. And he will ask the question, do you know my son Jesus? Let me close in a word of prayer, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. I'll ask the men to come forward. Father God, we come now to a time where we remember what you've called us to remember. And Lord, as we uh, now move our hearts to a time of remembrance, Father, I pray that as Christians, as we approach this table, that we would remember who we were before we were found in you. That, Father, we would remember that we were lost, blind, and held captive by the evil one. That, Father, we would remember the forgiveness that was needed. And, Lord, that we would remember that only by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and by the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary that we could have life. And, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in that. That we would respond in faith each and every day to that. That even though people mock and people make fun and and people slander the name of Jesus, that we would know and that we would rejoice that it is the name by which we are saved. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be a church that would not forget, that we would not neglect so great a salvation. And Lord, it's so amazing that that's why you instituted communion, that we would never forget, but it would be brought afresh to us that we would remember the cross of Calvary. So, Lord, as we come around your table, I pray that we would remember not just the story of this thief on the cross, but that we too, without your help and without your grace, would be hanging on that cross without any hope. But you saved us, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Deacons, come forward.